Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. This is episode 3,444, a three followed by three fours. Only weird people like me notice patterns like that, but... Some of you crazy freaks out in my audience might be among uh, the people that notice stuff like that. So if you do, great. If you don't, nah. You're like, what do these people care? I don't know. We just do. Anyway, we got a lot of stuff for you today. Here's what we're going to talk about. Um, Tucker Carlson is about to conduct with my, what might be the most important interview of this year. He's going to interview Vladimir Putin. Now, a lot of people in this audience, uh, especially drive-bys, uh, because I am unwilling to simply accept the mainstream media's word for what's going on in Ukraine, think I'm some sort of huge fan of Putin or something. I'm not. He's a sleazebag politician like all sleazebag politicians. Um, he's done some awful things. He's probably done some good things. One thing I will say for Putin, though, is he does seem to put the people of Russia before the people of any other country in the world. Doesn't mean he puts them before himself, but he puts them before any other country in the world. He's doing a better job for the Russian people than Biden is for the American people. That's not really the important thing, though. Tucker is going to at least let you hear the other side of the story from the guy that is supposedly responsible for everything. So why wouldn't your government and the mainstream media and all the talking heads, etc., at all, all the influencers that aren't real influencers, why would they all be opposed to this? Why would they be shrieking and you know, going into autistic breakdowns because Tucker Carlson is going to talk to Vladimir Putin? And if you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. Nobody's going to make you. There will be plenty of people trying to prevent it, but why? Well, Dr. Paul and Damick Adams will break that down for you today. What if you have a bunch of pecans, not cracked, still in the shell, still viable, and you're like, Hey, self, and yourself's like, yeah, what, man? You're like, self, how do we turn these nuts into trees? Because nuts make trees. And you're like, oh, I don't know. I guess we plant them in the ground. Well, what's the right procedure? You're like, I don't know. You and yourself might get together and go, who might know the answer to this question? And if you're a fan of the Survival Podcast, you'd be like, it's Nick Ferguson. And that's who we've sent that question to. So he will talk, talk to you about planting pecans from seed like a pro. C.J. Kilmer, Professor C.J. Kilmer, will be giving us a history lesson on just how bad the Civil War really was. And that may make some of the people raw-rawing a Civil War 2.0 think twice before they do so. Because the destruction we are capable of today is infinitely uh, beyond the destruction we were capable of in the 1860s. A little bit of a sad note here. This will be, for the foreseeable future anyway, CJ's last expert counsel segment. He's got some issues going on that I will not talk about on the air because that's up to him what he wants to reveal, but he's stepping away from that, and uh, he will be welcome back anytime he wants to be. Sean Mills will be talking about a general update on the solar market and the industry as a whole. There are some real opportunities right now to buy solar panels on the cheap. Jeff Lawton will talk about concerns about lead and other other heavy metals in newsprint. If you're using newsprint either in composting or if you're using it as weed blocker or something like that in gardening, he'll explain to you why you don't have to worry about it at all. You just don't. 
Uh, and then, because we're a little short on expert counsel content today, and we're going to hit on this, too, um, I have three segments. And they're, they're, two of them are very brief. One is, I'm going to give you a hack. How would you like to be able to eat steak anytime you want during the week and have it ready in five minutes from the time you decide you want to eat a piece of steak till you eat it, have it perfectly cooked to your liking, beautifully cooked the way you want it, seasoned exactly the way you want it, and you can say, I want that steak today to be a quarter-inch piece of steak with a couple eggs on top of it, or I want a big old hunk with some asparagus next to it, and I want to be able to cook my steak so quickly that my over-easy egg or my asparagus will be finished at the same time of my steak. And I can just throw it on a plate and eat it. like Almost like, remember, minute steaks, steakums, right? The cheesesteak steaks that you pulled out of the freezer and they were awful and pressed meat and sucked. But one thing you could say about them is you throw a bunch of them frozen into a pan and they were done in five minutes, right? That's why I call them minute steaks. Well, this is so far beyond that and it's nothing like that and it doesn't come out of the freezer. Well, it doesn't this week for what you're going to eat this week or over the next maybe ten days. I'm going to give you a hack that is so simple. And yes, some of you are jumping already to sous vide. It does involve sous vide machines. But it's not the way you think. And when I tell you this, you're going to be like, self, why didn't we think of that? And yourself will go, I don't know, but maybe that's why we listen to Jack. Next up, uh, I just had a thought. And I've said this before, but I, th I wanted to talk about it a little bit today. I'm going to talk to you, and this will be my main segment that will actually take you know some time to, to lay out as to why teaching a child to garden today is a weapon against authority and the system. A literal weapon. One of the most amazing weapons we have at our disposal. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and I'll just say it now, and I'll reiterate a little bit more on it at the end. I need guests. We have openings for guests right now. We're only booked out a few weeks. Usually we're booked out a few months. And I haven't been asking for guests or seeking guests or anything, so uh, it's dried up a little bit. So if you have always wanted to be on the Survival Podcast, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click, click on the Guests tab. Fill out a form, and the form will come to me, and I will review it. Fill it out completely, including the part on setup questions. It's your pitch to be on the air. I don't care if you've been on the show five times already, by the way. Some of you need to learn this. There's one way to get on the show, a completed guest form. It does not guarantee that we will, uh, we will book you. But it does guarantee that we will consider you. And any other method of attempting to get on the show, unless you're really, really important to me, like I know you and I've been trying to get you on, will just be ignored. You have to do the form. Ron Paul filled out the form. Ron Paul filled out... Gary Vaynerchuk filled out the form. Okay? Um... Uh, you know, uh, John McAfee was never on the show because he wanted to be on the show, but he didn't want to fill out the form for some ego reason. And John McAfee wanted to... So if John McAfee gets told no, you got no chance. Fill out the form, and we will consider you for the show. There's a reason. It is our system. It is our rule set. It is how we make sure that things do not fall through the cracks. It's how we make sure everything is in order. It's how we make sure that Dorothy has all the information she needs to book you. And if you don't fill out the form, you do not even get considered to be on the show, no matter what your name is. Yeah, anyway, I make Ken Berry fill out the form. <laughs> Let's put it that way. All right. Uh, and then uh, that's about it. We'll, we'll be wrapped up then. So... This is going to be a fun show today. It's not going to be, you know, it'll be a mix of some heavy and light content and plenty of things that you can actually do to make your life better. 
But we're going to start out with some heavy content. Why is it so important right now to the government? And it's not just Biden. Right? It, there's plenty of people on, on, the, on, the, on the GOP side. Oh, no. Who's the murderer? Oh, t- Tucker's, Tucker, Tucker, Tucker's a traitor. We need a European Union talked about sanctioning Tucker Carlson. How the hell are you going to sanction Tucker Carlson? He's a person. Um, people can watch whatever they want on the internet. No matter what you do, you can't really stop it. But why? Why, is it this, why are they hyperventilating and breaking down into total, complete... You know, autistic rage. Why? Well, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams will explain it. What is unpatriotic is the idea that a journalist can't do journalism. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. And he's 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 not going over there to he's going over there to do an interview. That's what journalists do. You know, you <laughs> hire a plumber, he fixes your toilet. That's what they do. So this whole idea, this whole freak out over the fact that he's going to interview Putin. Well, who cares? You know, who cares? Uh, you know, oh, he might lie to us. Oh, like our governments, <laughs> always. Yeah, but you know who should really care, and I'm sure it crosses everybody's mind, is that journalists sometimes are very vulnerable. Look at Sasan. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's right. Uh, so there's always some danger in this because the people who don't want to hear the truth can get pretty nasty. Yeah, and we know what's really happening here, and we're going to go into it. There's an article that came out in Newsweek uh, this morning, but what's really happening is that. People here in the U.S., but especially in Europe, as you mentioned, they're absolutely panicking, the people in power in Europe, because what have they done for the past uh, over two years now? They have completely destroyed their economy. They've gutted their industrial sector. They've destroyed jobs, all because they followed the U.S. foreign policy of a proxy war with Russia through Ukraine. They're the ones that have sacrificed. Germany is the one that doesn't have an economy anymore, and they don't want it exposed. They don't want the European people to see what their policies have done to them. That's why they're freaking out. And go to this next, uh, this first clip. This is Newsweek this morning, exclusive. Tucker Carlson could face sanctions (laughs) over Putin interview. They'll sanction anything that moves, uh, and they want to sanction Tucker Carlson because he's going to do what journalists do, which is do an interview. I guess it could be worse. Like you say, it could be like Assange. I'm sure they would throw him in jail if they could. But this is from the article. Now go on uh, that next clip. Uh, So Carlson's work in Russia could see the former Fox News host in hot water with the EU. Guy Verhofstadt, a former Belgian prime minister and current member of the European Parliament, told Newsweek, the lawmaker who has called for the EU to explore imposing a travel ban on Carlson, described Carlson as a mouthpiece of former President Donald Trump and Putin, adding, as Putin is a war criminal and the EU sanctions all who assist him in that effort, it seems logical that the External Action Service examine his case as well. So if you interview someone, you're a mouthpiece for that person, is, is what Guy is saying. It doesn't sound like an adult debate coming up between yeah. the people who, who di- uh, disagree on, on, on the issues of, of Ukraine and what's going on in Russia and all that. And that's, that's the shame because that's what we uh, are starved for. And the one thing that he's done is expose the total failure of journalism in the U.S., you know, because here he was fired by Fox uh, for not towing some lines on certain things. But instead of having to sort of slink away and have a little website somewhere, he's actually bigger than ever. And this interview will probably be the most watched interview in the history of journalism. <laughs> you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people will watch this interview. It'll make a fortune. So that's what irritates them most is the fact that he's thrived by breaking the chains of the mainstream media, he's thrived because people are starved 
for information. And that's exactly what the elitists don't want because they're authoritarian at heart. They don't want you to even hear the other side. You know, it was like in, this, in the Soviet East Bloc uh, before the wall fell. If you even listened to Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, you were, you were attacked, you were sent to the gulag. They don't even want you to hear the other side. They want to control the narrative. They're the authoritarians. Well, just to go to show, we're not picking on the Europeans. We've got plenty of authoritarians here. Put on this next clip. Here's our old friend, Bill Crystal. Perhaps we need a total and complete shutdown of Tucker Carlson re-entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. So he believes that Tucker Carlson should not be allowed back in the U.S. because he went overseas and did journalism. It's pretty amazing. Interestingly enough, by the way, that Tucker Carlson got his start in journalism working for Bill Crystal on the Weekly Standard. So that makes Bill even more mad. He didn't stay on the reservation. <laughs> yeah, he, he, did, he didn't follow the orders and the direction. He was supposed to be a student yeah. there. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Here he learned to look at things that by intellectually. So. Well, yeah, it looks like the interview is going to be out tomorrow. I'm not sure exactly how he's going to release it. It's going to be on X eventually, Twitter X eventually. I'm certainly going to watch it. I think so many people are going to watch it. So yeah, they they bring up a very good point. As as much as people are losing their minds about it in the United States, the European Union, in particular, is going absolutely bonkers, shit crazy over it. And it, it, and it is you know, it's not like we have a stellar economy here in the United States right now. In spite of the fact that they keep telling you, don't believe your grocery bill, don't believe your gas bill, don't believe your electric bill, don't believe anything you're seeing because these these reports by people who run the system say the system's good, right? Like We still have a relatively decently functioning economy. The European economy is absolutely trashed. You know what? To really understand this, if you're old enough to remember what the economy was like in 1998, 1999, during the dot-com boom, we're nowhere near that, obviously, right? But compared to where Europe is, that's where we are. That's how bad the European, especially like Germany and some of the other uh, countries in Europe proper versus the UK, right? I mean, just trashed. And you know Putin's going to talk about that, because if I was Putin, I would talk about that. The other thing, though, is, and I shared this on X, formerly Twitter, it, I don't know how long we're going to have to keep saying that for people to know what you're talking about, because rebranding sometimes is a dumbass idea, but... There is a, a a graphic I shared yesterday. It's a four-way graphic, and the first one is Barbara Walters interviewing Putin, and then the next one is George Snefalophagus uh, interviewing Putin. The third one, I'm not sure who it is. It it, it 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 makes me think it's whoever the current or the last host of 60 Minutes was, just by the way it's set up. And then there's a picture of uh, Tucker not interviewing Putin because it hadn't happened yet, but they're just kind of blended together in a, a you know two-part collage. And it says next to Walter's journalism and Stephanopoulos' journalism and the 60-minute dude journalism, and it says next to Tucker's treason. It was okay when all these other people did it because it was approved by the establishment at the time that it was okay for him to talk, but not now. <coughs> but when I, what I've also shared recently is that this exact same people, exact, and this person commented on my, my post and said, liberals don't equal Democrats. Yeah, they do. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not playing that game with you anymore. If you're a Democrat, I'm neither, 
So I get to criticize both. But if you are willingly associating with the Democrat Party at this point, you're not just a liberal, you're an idiot. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say that. I hate writing off half the country. And it's not like the other side's not full of idiots, too. But you've chosen the side that thinks it's okay to cut the dick and balls off of a young boy to affirm his gender, which you just disaffirmed. Okay? So no. 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 Anyway, back to it. Anyway, um, the people that are absolutely losing their shit right now, going back about uh, 16, 17 years, because many of these people had prominent positions that long ago still, these were the ones that were cheering and raw-rawing uh, when President Ajimahad from um, Iran at the time, who was actively involved in state-sponsored terrorism spoke at Columbia University, and anybody that said anything negative about it was apparently an evil bastard for opposing free speech. As though being given a platform to speak at Columbia University is a right inherent to free speech. I mean, I don't get one, you don't get one. But the same people. In fact, when I shared that, I put a quote from an article that was out on, on ABC from a student at Columbia. I am very proud of my school right now, said Yavin Kiernick, who watched the 90-minute presentation inside the Rune Aldridge Auditorium. We gave Amajinahad the respect to speak, and that speaks volumes about our character. I know that's not a news anchor, but they only put the stuff on there they want you to see. That's what ABC wanted you to see, that they gave him respect. Now, here's the difference between me and these people. I'm consistent. I think if Columbia University wants to let the president of another country, including Ahmadinejad, I guess he's replaced by now, but whoever the hell the president of Iran is today, or the, the, the president of the king of Jordan, or the prime minister of Australia, or the Xi Jinping of China, or Putin himself, except Putin's too smart to come here, because um, he would be in danger if he did, then they should be able to do that. I don't have to like that person or agree with what they have to say. They are free to speak, and if you want them at your venue, then you have every right to do that. And well, what about the parents who didn't stop paying Columbia and transfer your kid if you're the one paying the bills? Or tell your kid they're on their own if they want to go, if that's really that important to you. That's how that works. It's called free market. So not only do I think Tucker Carlson is totally within his rights to go to Russia and interview Putin, I think that any journalist anywhere can and should go interview all of the people that they tell you who are good and all of the people that they tell you are bad and that they should ask hard, tough questions. They should let the person answer the question. They should do interviews the way I do. You don't go in an interview to argue with the person. That's not an interview. That's an argument. You let them be heard and you push back when they say something you're not sure about and you say, well, explain this further or how's that work? And Tucker's great at doing these interviews. In fact, he's so good at it because he's very disarming, and often I have seen him get people to admit things without taking a hard line with them because they didn't realize they were doing it. He's probably the best journalist right now to do this and the only one with the courage and the balls to do so. Okay? So I think you should watch it. I'm going to watch it. But the one thing you should never do is turn away from something that the mainstream tells you not to look at or pay attention to. When you cut out a man's tongue, you have not proven him a liar. You've only shown 
that you fear what he has to say. Just my thoughts. That's not a defense of Putin. That's a defense of freedom of speech and freedom of the press and your right to hear what anyone you want to listen to has to say. I know that's crazy because it's consistent. And that's the one thing you can't be today is consistent without being attacked for it. Anyway, moving on to something a little more down-to-earth and beneficial to your backyard. Planting pecans from seed like a pro with a guy that is a pro at planting things, Nick Ferguson. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer for all good on pecan trees. And they ask, what is the best way to plant pecans? My two seven-year-old pecan trees are finally bearing more than a couple of nuts. My twin questions uh, it are when to harvest now that they are still on the tree or let them drop naturally and pick them up off the ground. Then what is the best way to plant them with husks on or stripped off and how deep and what nut orientation on their side, sharp point up or down? Any suggestions for a few pots or a few in pots to start versus most of them in the ground for permanent in site placement? <clears throat> I'll have about 100 nuts to plant. I'll be planting the ones in the ground into a sandy silt arroyo bottom that's underlaid by heavy clay at about 4 feet down the slopes. Zone 6. I'm just going to skip over some of this stuff um, for you listeners. Okay, um, you need to have fully ripened nuts. So definitely don't pick them from the tree. They need to be falling on the ground to be ripe. If they're in the husk and the husk is open on the tree and they're just kind of like rattling around in the husk that's fine they've disconnected from the tree and and they're ready to go so you can pick them off the tree like that but generally you want to make sure they have fully ripened and have disconnected from that husk and normally that doesn't happen until they have hit the ground so you can pick them up with the husk still on them and protect them from, you know, squirrels and other predators. So, um, you know, you collect them, put them in a basket or something and keep them somewhere safe until they finish ripening. Definitely do not leave those husks on them and don't force those husks off of them um, because part of that maturation process needs to happen with them um, held intact. Um, so that husk needs to be dry enough to release the net naturally. So definitely don't remove them yourself. They need to be planted about as deep as the seed itself. So between an inch and two inches in the ground, I mean, three inches is probably not going to be a big deal. Um, but I'd, I'd put them about inch to an inch and a half in the ground. Just plant them on their side. It really doesn't matter. If you start them in pots, make sure you have the pots sitting off the ground a couple feet in the air, sitting on some... Uh, hardware cloth covered shelves so make some shelves with hardware cloth so if the if the roots start coming out the bottom of those pots they're going to air prune this is going to force it to air prune and produce fibrous feeder roots laterally and it helps to avoid some of the circling and girdling root syndrome that you're especially going to have um, with things like nut trees i'm going to give you a few propagation details in just a second but so that, you know, if you want to make sure you're doing the best job, you can get more nerdy about it. But honestly, if you just drop each nut in the ground in a little hole a couple inches deep that you drilled with something like a tulip bulb auger and a cordless drill, and you just toss them in there, leave them there, you'll probably be fine. 
I don't think you need to get really particular about this, but you can if you want to. You're not going to have as good of a germination. Predators are going to eat some. You know, the fast and dirty method is sometimes best, but like I said, it all depends on your situation. So if you want to really geek out, you're going to take your ripe, filled out, and dry shelled pecans. You're going to soak those for 24 hours in warm water. Then you're going to take those soaked nuts to make sure they're well hydrated, and you're going to put them in some moist vermiculite, and you're going to cold stratify those in the fridge for two to six months. And they need to be in between 36 and 40 degrees. So fridge, not freezer. Make sure they're put somewhere that they're not going to freeze. And that's a minimum of two months and up to six months. The reason for this is to basically communicate to the seed that when it warms up, it's going to be time to germinate. And it's going to help it leach out some of those germination inhibiting uh, hormones that are in the, the seed coat. And then last, if you want to, you can go for a fast germination treatment. And that's going to be a 90 degree Fahrenheit water soak. So you're going to use something like an aquarium heater and let it run for a few days in there to make sure you're getting good, steady, stable temperatures. I would put this, I'd put it in a, in a, uh, a cooler in your house somewhere. So get a cooler. You can put a couple of five gallon buckets in the cooler or something like that. Stick an aquarium heater in the, in each bucket and, uh, an aquarium air pump with an air stone to circulate the water. You need to have both of those. If it's stagnant water, most of the seeds are just going to die and it needs to not be hotter than 90 degrees. Um, 90 is perfect for this. So just set it at 90, check and make sure that it's staying at 90 and not going up to like 98 or whatever. And you have to have the air stone to circulate the water. Tannins are going to leach out of those shells like crazy. It's going to look like some really strong brewed tea to like coffee. So if you have a, a cooler, it's going to stain it. So just think about what you're using because it's probably going to stain whatever you put in there. Uh, you're going to have to change that water daily to remove the germination inhibitors from the shells. So you're going to put those in there. They're going to soak at 90 degrees until they uh, the radicals start popping out of the shell. So there you go. Fast and dirty method is that tulip bulb auger. Uh, throw the nut in the hole, kick dirt back over it, step on it to tamp it down, and go to the next spot. Or you can get nerdy, pre-sprout with the 24-hour warm soak, stratification and hot soak. Oh, uh, with that uh, with that fast germination hot soak, make sure you're paying attention because the radical, that's the, the rootlet coming out, will start to emerge, and it's very easy to rake it. They're very brittle. You must plant them immediately as soon as that radical starts to emerge. I'm talking... The, the shell just barely cracks open and you see that little white root tip starting to poke out. Take them out right away and get them in the ground. If it breaks off, the nut is worthless trash. So don't get lazy and skip checking those every day. Every day. I'd check them in the morning and in the evening. And when you do the daily water change, check each nut to see if they're cracked, slimy, or rotting. If one of them is cracked or slimy or rotting, throw it away immediately. I hope that helps. Happy planting. 
my consulting tour schedule is pretty much full, but if someone in East Texas wants a spot, I've got Thursday the 29th or Friday the 1st. I'll be headed uh, south of I-20 in the Lufkin-Palestine region. On the other end of the consulting tour, I'll be headed home through Arkansas from Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, to Little Rock and south from there. So the 10th or 11th of March is available if you're in the Arkansas or south-central Missouri areas. Tree sales have gone well this year, as usual, and we're down to single digits stock on most tree packs. So if any of you guys have been waiting to pick up a few, don't wait too long because they're probably going to be gone soon. You can check those out at rareplantstore.com. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. Well, definitely, if you want to up your game with fodder trees and some of the other cool stuff that Nick has this year at rareplantstore.com, get on it. I'm always surprised that he even has any left uh, in February. I mean, usually his orders fill up in January, so he's got a few left. I would go ahead and get on that site and pick what you want if you really do want to get it because he's got great stuff at great pricing. And uh, I kind of helped him put that whole program together, and uh, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, Next up, let's hear from uh, Professor C.J. Kilmer on just how bad the American Civil War really was. Howdy, this is C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this segment, I want to talk a little bit about just how bad the American Civil War really was. Now, those of you who've been listening to my show for a long time, or if you have gone back through my back catalog much, know that I did a giant series years ago on the American Civil War, where I went through the whole thing from many angles in painstaking detail. And one of the many things that I learned was that as bad as I thought the Civil War was before doing all that deep research on it, the reality was much worse in just about every imaginable way. And the reason I wanted to talk about this here is because with the continually ratcheting up political tensions and this being an extremely contentious election year and the recent stuff wherein some states are very strongly resisting the federal government when it comes to immigration policy, you know, I'm hopeful for some sort of peaceful, orderly decentralization up to and including secession and dissolution of the American empire. But I am not an advocate of any sort of resort to violence other than as a genuinely, truly last resort, because even if the regime that you're resisting is genuinely bad, when you unlock the Pandora's box of violence, things have a tendency to get out of hand very quickly and lots of innocent people end up suffering and dying. And there's a good chance you'll lose because states, you know, the one thing they're really good at is mass violence. And so that's their game. And so if you try and challenge them, it's like you're challenging them on their home court, number one. Number two, even if your side, quote unquote, wins, there's a good chance that not only will will there be so much collateral damage in the process that at best it'll be a Pyrrhic victory, but also there's the possibility that your side, which might have started out with good and noble principles and goals, might get corrupted over the course of something as ugly and corrosive as a civil war. So... You know, I think those who are listeners to Jack's podcast and who have been for a while are probably sane enough to already know this. But just for anybody that is maybe a newcomer to TSP or who is still 
you know, has these Red Dawn collapsitarian fantasies about overthrowing the system or whatever and having it end up all, you know, happy ending at the end of it, I think you're wrong and I think you're crazy and I think you're playing with fire. So the standard estimate of military deaths due to the American Civil War has for a long time been a bit over 600,000 soldiers, counting both sides. Now, that's almost as many military deaths as all other American wars combined. And according to the standard estimate, about 360,000 of those killed were on the Union side, and about 260,000 were on the Confederate side. And this means that the Union lost more, obviously, in absolute numbers, but the Confederates lost more in relative terms because they had a much smaller population to begin with. The population of the United States just prior to the Civil War, taken in the census of 1860, was only about 31 million people. And this means that based on this traditional estimate of 620,000 killed in action, about 2% of the pre-war American population died while serving militarily in the war. So this war was much bloodier, for Americans anyway, than any other war in which the U.S. has participated in both absolute and relative terms. I think the current U.S. population is estimated to be in the neighborhood of 330 million people, give or take. And to put it in perspective, a similar death toll, assuming the 620,000 is accurate, a similar death toll proportionately of the current U.S. population would be a body count of around 6.5 to 7 million people. Now, think about how much the U.S. was traumatized by Vietnam, and then realize that the U.S. only lost roughly 60,000 soldiers in Vietnam. Now imagine what it would be like if this country suffered around 6 or 7 million killed in a conflict. And furthermore to that, in recent years, there have been a number of different studies and things that have raised questions over whether the 620,000 standard estimate is even accurate. And there's some very good reason I won't get into here because of time for thinking that the deaths may have been much higher. And one expert study done a little bit over a decade ago came to the conclusion that the military body count in this war was probably more in the neighborhood of 750 to 850,000. We'll never have an exact final answer for military deaths in the American Civil War, and we're even less likely to ever have a final answer with civilian deaths. A common estimate for civilian deaths in the Civil War is 50,000, but many experts believe that is very, very low and that the true number is probably much higher. It's possible that where that 50,000 originally came from for civilian deaths was direct civilian deaths, meaning people that were, you know, victims of collateral damage. Um, There's a battle happening in your town, and an artillery shell hits your house and kills you, something like that. But if you factor in people who are killed by things like disease and malnutrition, civilians killed by those things, who ordinarily would not have died had it not been for the ripple effects of the war then the civilian death figure is much, much higher. Probably several times the 50,000 that is commonly given for civilian deaths in the Civil War. And even so, even if it's a hundred or a couple hundred thousand civilian deaths in the American Civil War, that's even abnormally low historically. Especially compared to 20th century major wars, where civilian deaths typically far outnumber military deaths. In World War II, for example, I think at least four times as many civilians died in World War II as soldiers who died in World War II, counting all sides together. 
And so there's every reason to believe that if Civil War 2.0 did happen in today's America, probably the civilian death toll would far exceed the death toll amongst actual combatants, and the death toll amongst actual combatants would likely be horrific. It would likely be in the millions. And keep in mind, the United States has never lost a million soldiers in a single war. Again, bloodiest for Americans body count war in history is the Civil War, and that's you know, somewhere between probably 620 and 850,000 military deaths. So Civil War 2.0 would be many, many times that and an even bigger civilian body count. And then when you factor in all the other types of damage, the damage wrecked to the economy, the wealth that was erased in all the death and destruction, the political costs that resulted in a more authoritarian government than existed before in many ways. And then on top of that, the millions of people who were physically and or psychologically maimed from the war. And when you take all these things into account and look at them square in the face, I think it is a chilling warning against any childish Red Dawn fantasies about how to deal with our current political situation. And I think we'd be far better off looking at things like the nonviolent movements in the latter days of the Soviet empire that helped bring that empire down. In particular, things like the Solidarity Movement in Poland and the Charter 77 Movement in Czechoslovakia that resulted in the Velvet Revolution there. I think that a homegrown American version of those sorts of things is likely to give much better results with much less horrific side effects than any kind of attempt at Civil War 2.0. So that's it for this segment, and I'm going to be stepping away from participating in the TSP Expert Council at least for the time being, we'll see what happens down the road, but I'm completely overwhelmed with lots of things going on right now, and I just don't have the available time and bandwidth to be able to regularly submit segments to Jack for expert council shows, unfortunately, and so I'm just I'm paring back some of my commitments at the moment because I'm really overwhelmed. But I do just want to say to Jack, thank you very much, sincerely, from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity to be part of the expert council. It's been an honor and a privilege to speak to the TSP audience on a semi-regular basis, and I hope you, the audience, you, the listeners, have enjoyed my segments as well. Maybe I'll be back someday, who knows, but otherwise you can always keep an eye on my own show, The Dangerous History Podcast. So I, I wish CJ well, and I am uh, not enjoyed uh, at all at not having him be part of the council, uh, but I understand people have things in their life, and uh, and I, I, I do hope that the things that are making things hard for him improve. Uh, back to the segment, though, I just want to point something out. If you had been living in, let's say, South Carolina or central southern Pennsylvania when the Civil War began. You really had two choices. You could have believed the people raw-rawing it, said it will be over in a few weeks and our side will win, or you could have not believed it. That's really the only two choices you had. You, civilians, one of the problems we have is we don't get to determine, like they tell you you can vote and all, but you don't get to decide whether there's a war or not. Once the war started, if you lived in the southern states, probably the smartest thing you could have done for yourself, hindsight being 2020, would have been to haul your ass to Florida, which was part of the Confederacy, but wasn't really involved at all, and 
was never really invaded or anything like that because it was too small at the time to be of strategic importance and it was abundant in natural resources. It was probably the largest producer of beef in the Confederacy and largely left alone to itself. If you were in the northern states, probably the place you could have gone that would have been the safest, even though you wouldn't have had to gone this far, is Maine. If not that, then the best thing you could have done was head out to the frontier into the western states right on the edge of their territory so that you could just move into an adjacent territory that won't state yet. Like, that would have given you max. In other words, in the words of Mr. Miyagi from the original horrible yet, you know, classic Karate Kid, uh, Danielson, the uh, best uh, block is when punch come, no be there. Right? Like, that was the best thing you could do because war's horrible. Horrible. And the Civil War is the only war... After you know, after the uh, the Revolutionary War and to some degree the War of eighteen twelve, where death and destruction were on the, the on U.S. soil at a level that they were. This is why the average European is far less pro-war than United States people are because they still have a lot more of the memory of what it looks like when war is on your own soil. War on your own soil always looks like this, and to drive this point home. Um, in my items of the day, I have all kinds of stuff, and some, some of the stuff is books. One of the books I've recommended for years that you read, this is a great book to think about how to adapt to shortages and to learn history at the same time, is a book called Ersatz in the Confederacy by Mary Elizabeth Massey. And an ersatz is a low-quality replacement, burnt chicory root instead of coffee would be an example. When I read that book and wrote the review on it, there was a quote in it that with all the, all the things I read that kind of hit me hard that I put into the review. And I'm going to read it to you right now to drive home what you just heard from CJ. During World War II, men and women on the home front were encouraged to use it up, wear it out, make do, or do without. After reading this book, however, the men and women in the southern home front did that and more. From 1941-1945, butchers may have been asked for a free soup bone for the dog. But as the Civil War dragged on, it wasn't unusual for a Confederate butcher to hang a dressed rat in the window when one was available. When your butcher is proudly displaying a skinned rat carcass in the window of his shop, you have fallen about as far as you can. I think that the, the civilian deaths in the Civil War are so underreported that it staggers the mind. But the, the, one of the things you always do have to look at in these conflicts is the military deaths. Why? They're your young, productive men. They're your young, productive men. You know how many of those are dead in Ukraine right now? About a half a million. A half a million. Of the most productive, young, future of the country men. And their population, by the way, uh, at least when this started, was pretty close to the population of the United States in the time of the Civil War. It, it, entire generations butchered, and damned, and destroyed. Yeah, that's, I'm not, when I talk about the Ukraine war, I'm not pro either side. I'm anti-war. Because the only position you can be other than anti-war is pro-war. And if you're for war, if you think war is a good thing, 
you are a psychopath and you are in need of professional help. No, we do not need a Civil War 2.0. Uh, what we need, in my opinion, is a peaceful divorce. I don't know if it's possible. But I don't think that we can continue as the empire that we are any further. And I think that at some point we will have to choose between a peaceful uh, a divorce and a violent civil war. And I don't like saying that, and I hope I'm wrong. And I would say, I think the odds of that are about 50-50. And I don't mean 50% we do, 50% we don't. I mean 50% we get to the point where that's going to become a choice that we have to make. That's pretty damn high odds when the stakes are that high. Anyway, let's move on to something a little bit better about being self-reliant, independent. That is solar power, not to make the hippies happy, but to actually have power when other people don't. Sean Mills with a general update on this, the state of the solar industry. Hey everybody, it's Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead, and I don't have a question to answer today for the expert council, but I did want to provide a bit of an update on kind of the state of solar supplies. We have a glut of solar panels on the market right now. Uh, there was a big build-out that happened when the COVID lockdowns ended, and there has not been a corresponding jump in installations. Uh, the legislature out in California is doing the best that they can to destroy the solar business, and uh, the early numbers that are coming out uh, looks like they're doing a good job there. I think there's something like 40% of the solar installation companies in California are expected to file bankruptcy or merge this year. And so California always kind of led the way in residential installations, and we aren't seeing utility-scale installations because the price of borrowing money has jumped up so high. And so... You've got this massive supply on the market right now without a whole lot of demand to go along with it. So solar panels are as cheap as I've ever seen them. Uh, there was a lot of companies towards the end of last year that were really running huge liquidation, just trying to get stuff off their balance sheet. You know, these companies, if they've got a million dollars worth of solar panels sitting in their warehouse at the end of the year, they've got to pay taxes on that inventory. So they're willing to take a bit of a price cut uh, to avoid having to pay those usage taxes. So there was a, definitely a bunch of sales towards the end of the year last year on solar panels. And most of those price points have remained persistent through uh, the first part of 2024 here. As far as batteries go, all of the input metals for batteries have come down in price. So similar to the panels, you had a lot of production really ramping up in terms of mining capacity. Uh, right there coming out of COVID, everyone thought that, you know, electronic vehicles were going to take over the market and that by 2024, we'd have all this demand for lithium and, and the other uh, metals that go in. So there's been a bunch of investment that hasn't really resulted in corresponding demand yet. If you read the headlines, you can see all of these EV companies are already kind of walking back. They're very quietly walking back the super ambitious look at us. Uh, projections that they made last year and the year before. And even the ones that are kind of continuing along with their uh, numbers are doing it at much higher price points than what they said when they, of course, you know, had um, 
Joe Biden out there driving the Ford F-150 Lightning, for example. So they do a lot of this stuff for publicity so that you listen to what they're saying and their stock price goes up. And then they literally don't do anything that they say. But I digress. Uh, like I said, battery materials will come down this year. They've already, they came way down last year. But batteries are not, or rather batteries are really more driven by production costs. And there hasn't been a lot of increase in efficiency on production costs at this point. Now, I do think that as shipping prices come back down when some of these log jams, uh, work themselves out, that you're going to see some cheap, um, you know, storage solutions hit the market. We saw a couple pretty cheap ones around $200 a kilowatt hour towards the end of last year with the, uh, you know, uh, post Thanksgiving pre Christmas sales. I could see potentially, you know, this isn't going to be an everyday price, but I could see us coming down below that 200 point, uh, storage cost. At, at a production level, everyone's sitting right about $140. That's like the industry average, $140 per kilowatt hour. So there's going to be a time where people are going to start saying, look, do we want to sell these batteries for, you know, 50% more than what it takes us to make them or do we want to sell them, right? And so I definitely see the potential for lithium iron phosphate battery packs coming down here in 2024. I don't think it's going to be persistent, like I said, but I think there are going to be some buying opportunities. As far as inverters um, and charge controllers, they're getting better, but they're not getting cheaper. So you can get more for $1,000 than you could last year and way, way more than you could two or three years ago. But there's not a bunch of super low price inverters out there on the market. And I don't know if that's going to happen. I think that the industry has kind of figured out that the way to get more sales is to make better components than the, the cheap stuff, you know. I think that the consumer is starting to get smarter. They're seeing that a lot of people are putting these super cheap inverters in and getting like two years out of them and then they fry for who knows why. And so I don't think you're going to see lower price points on the inverter and the, and the charge controllers. I do think that you're going to see better technology for the price points that we have. And generally, you know, the size of inverter you need to run a house is going to run you 1500 to, you know, as much as $5,000, just depending on what you go with and if you need multiple inverters for your system. But that's compared to like eight to 15000 five years ago. So the the price points are coming down. They're just not coming down as fast as solar panels and as fast as I expect uh, lithium iron phosphate battery packs to come down. Now we are seeing flooded lead acid uh, availability creep up. So coming out of COVID, if you ordered a bunch of new batteries, you might have to wait six months just to get them. Um, I actually, at the first self-reliance festival, I went out and bought one battery, 12 volt, 100 amp hours. I paid $600 for it because the one that I wanted, they didn't have, and it was going to be six months. I called around and everyone was pretty much telling me the same thing. So that's gone away. And so there's still an opportunity right now for flooded lead acids, you know, stuff like the Trojan T105 battery pack. Uh, I've actually got several installs going in this year that are using the Trojan T105 uh, battery pack, which is the one that we used when we first went off grid. I still think that lithium iron phosphate is the way to go, but I fully understand that some people just can't lay that kind of cash down um, to get a battery bank like that. And it's better for them to put in a system and then save up 
to upgrade the system in five to seven years than to wait until they can get a system in the first place. So that's all for me today. I'm out of questions. You guys get some questions in about off-grid living, solar thermal, solar photovoltaics. I'm actually kicking off a new thing on vermicomposting toilets this year. So if you got questions on how those work, uh, hit me up. Anything about generators, you know, anything about kind of alternative energy, being off the grid, rainwater collection, that type of stuff, shoot it over to me and I'll get it answered. So, yeah, I'll reiterate one thing Sean said there at the end. Like, I need questions. I need questions, guys. I'm probably going to put a little blurb in the email today and uh, I might do a blog post on Monday. My expert panel, I've got some pikers there, but I also have people that answer every single question they get, and if I don't get questions, they're done for them to do. Some of them are good at coming up with things like Sean is with this update that was really valuable, and some kind of need some prompting. So I need questions, and we'll talk about some other things when I get to that. Um, but I do want to point out that this has actually been the case for a while. Like it's Now panels are even cheaper, but there is no financial case to be made against solar panels the expense remains in the batteries and that's that's changing across time as well um right now the thing is you have to pay the bill up front but there is no cheaper energy that you can buy as a homeowner than solar and it's only going to get better with time so if you're not there yet ready to pull the trigger keep an eye on it because there will be opportunities it really 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 will and you know with the with the panels, some of these big opportunities coming up, pallets of them at a time, splitting with other people, get on a Telegram list. Sean's been really good about hooking people up together in groups to be able to share opportunity buys like that. All right, moving on. Let's hear from Jeff Lawton about a concern that I hear a lot about when people look at using newsprint in any way in gardening applications. But there's going to be lead in the There's lead in there. Uh, you know... Okay, well, we'll let Jeff explain that to you, but I have a different observation before Jeff even speaks. Where the hell do you get newspapers now? I haven't seen, I mean, I guess they're at the store and all, but who reads them? I haven't seen anybody actively reading a paper in a very, very long time. I guess some people still do. Uh, but I ha- I just, I don't see it. I mean, I grew up at a time where like, you went to a park or something, there was always some people sitting around reading the paper. I just don't see it anymore. Anyway, but if you do have access to newsprint, should you use it in the garden or not? And if so, why don't you have to worry about it? Jeff, explain it. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. Actually, it's dawn in Australia, and we're just waking up and getting into it. Um, question. Would there be ink in newspaper print that contains lead? No. It's nearly all soil inks today. And um, you don't have any trouble with lead in your newspaper print. Um, And even if there was, there would be microscopic amounts of lead, um, which is around our soils anyway. And lead does not become water soluble until you hit a pH of 4.5. All heavy metals need to be as low as 4.5 on the pH scale. If you have soil at pH 4.5, there's very little plants growing. You're in, a, you're in a waterlogged swamp, possibly. And that's not where you got your sheep, I'm sure. So, all this heavy metal lead worry is only really an issue if you got 4.5 on the pH scale, which is extremely acid. 
It's not acid rain, because acid rain is where we get 3.5 and aluminum becomes water-soluble, and that's a complete plant poison. But at 3.5, you're not in a natural ecosystem, that's for sure. You may have dips from acid rain. You may have a dip now and again, which will make, you know, your your, 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 um, heavy metals soluble for for a few minutes, let's say, less than 20 minutes. But um, if you've got a lot of organic matter, you're farming organically, you're adding, you're not, you're not depleting the amount of organic matter in the soil, you're building the organic matter in the soil by your animal management, your sheep management, your pasture management. It, it, it's all locked up. So look, there's a big unnecessary panic about this in the way we work land and the way we regenerate land. Um, industrial ag, <laughs> that's a different story, right? Of course, in every way, it's a different story. But let's get back to the newsprint anyway. You know, that's a bit about heavy metals. Uh, <laughs> newsprint today is, is nearly all soya ring. Soya is not great stuff in the way they grow, but it's not got heavy metals in it. Gloss, uh, heavy duty gloss magazines, right? High quality gloss. That might have a few more heavy metals in it. But you're just talking newspapers? Nah. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Go for it. Okay. There you go. So I, I kind of re- resisted the whole newspaper thing for years myself. I saw Jeff doing it uh, with gardens and putting huge amounts of it down his weed locker and stuff. And when I finally got to interview him the first time, I, that's over 10 years ago now, um, and I asked him about it, it, w- it wasn't the soy ink thing, because it wasn't really the case yet uh, that, that made me go, okay, I, I get it, I'll just not worry about it anymore. It was what he explained about the pH. And he's like, if you have a pH that's you know below 4, you have other problems, and he's not wrong. And uh, so uh, that that's what did it for me. But if, if you see an application, don't be afraid of it. Uh, it's just not something that you're going to have to worry about. And it, I think it's important that we find ways to use resources so that we can deal with waste streams. And so I think that's a good one. All right, so I've got a three for, t- for you guys today uh, for my part. Number one, I want to give you a hack for steak. So I'm going to tell you what I did yesterday, and then I'm going to tell you how I was able to do it. So yesterday... I wanted something for breakfast. It was about 12.30 in the afternoon. That's when I have my breakfast because I usually do two meals a day. And I went to the, to, out to the kitchen, and I made a chuck eye steak and a over-easy egg, really a basted egg. I don't even flip them. I put the lid on it, throw a little water in there, and you know, you, you make sure that you all the little white that's around that big duck yolk is actually cooked so it's not snotty and boogery. I wanted the yolk soft and the egg, the white, cooked through and in the time it took me to cook one egg, I had a perfectly uh, beautiful medium chuck eye, perfectly seasoned, on my plate. I didn't put the picture out yet. I don't want to put a picture out. I drizzled a little Calabrian chili oil over it for some spice on the egg and sliced the steak up, put the egg on top of it, and ate that. It was delicious. And the whole event took me about five minutes, all of five minutes. And cooking the egg is very easy, but it was more work than cooking the steak. How do you think I did it? Here's how you do it. I've been making now steaks for the week as a roast, in a way. So in this particular instance, what I did is one of the chuck rolls that I bought, I removed 
the chuck guy from the chuck roll. And the chuck guy will kind of degrade as it gets closer to the head. So the part that people really want to eat is all the way at the back end, so toward the, the butt end of the cow. And you can get about eight inches out of that. That's really nice. Like most people only take about four, but really it's about eight. So I took that eight inch piece and I tied it. It's in my video on how to break down meat. I tied it as a roast. I then salted it and let it sit for a day with the salt on it. Then I added my herbal rub. And then I vacuum sealed it. And then I threw it back in the refrigerator overnight. You don't have to do that part. I did that because the osmosis of the salt and the liquid moves a lot of the herb flavor inside the steak. I then took the whole thing and threw it in a sous vide at 140 degrees for four hours. Velvet tender. You're talking about something that tastes like more like a steak in flavor but eats with the texture of a prime rib. It's just gorgeous. And I put it in there, again, for four hours. And when it was done, I didn't do anything with it right away. I took it out of the sous vide machine threw it back in the refrigerator. I left it in there overnight. And the next day, I busted it out of jail. And then, whenever I wanted a steak, I, do I want a one-inch steak? Do I want a thin steak? What do I want? I just sliced off a piece put it in a covered dish and put it back in the refrigerator, took the piece or pieces I sliced off, got a nice hot pan with some good beef tallow or butter in it, and browned it and left it in there long enough to warm it through but not change the cook. Now you might be saying, Jack, 140, that's a little, that's a little high of a temperature for you. I have found that a 140 on a roast in a sous vide will end up with a redness of the center that's about the same as a 135 on an individual like three-quarter inch steak. You, your mileage may vary. So you've got to figure that out for yourself. But if anything, go under where you want it because you can leave it in the pan as long as you need to to get it to where you want it. My wife didn't want it because she's like, that's too red for me. I'm like, I'll just cook it longer. And if you want to make one well done, then the smart thing to do is you cut two thin ones instead of one thick one. And if you do this, so you can get anything that you can effectively cut a roast out of, piece of sirloin so when you break down a sirloin uh, top butt that piece that you maybe you take your baseball steaks out of and again it would be much better if you tie it you do the same thing and then you're cutting top sirloin when you're when you're gonna when you're gonna sear it off and you can make enough for, you know for several steaks for a week and whenever you want to make steak you just take it out cut a piece off throw it in a pan heat it up or throw it on the grill heat it up just keep an eye on the temp so you don't go over because all you got to do is get it warm through and if you have a significant other that likes theirs done more than you, cut theirs thinner, and they'll finish much faster. Very simple. Game changer for those of you living carnivore, keto, etc. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a great way to go. Alright, now, I want to go a little bit serious here for a minute. It's not going to be a long segment, but it is going to be a little bit serious. Because I, I, I'm not kidding here. It's not a meme. It's not cute. Teaching children to grow their own food is a direct act of insurrection against the state and its systems and the mainstream media and everything else at the current time. They do not want this. They do not want this. They want you eating grains. They want you eating soy and corn as your primary ca uh, calories. And they want you eating bugs and other garbage. If you're going to eat meat, they want it to come from a CAFO. Why? Because when you commoditize the food system, it's easy to control. It makes people fat and sick, and fat and sick people are compliant. 
we were watching, we watched, Tucker Carlson did an interview. I really recommend that you guys watch. It was with a guy that used to work in the pharma industry, along with lobbying and buying influence for the pharma, farming, uh, pharmaceutical industry. And it was primarily about Ozempic. But at one point in it, he said something. Well, he said a couple things. I'll tell you the first thing he said. I've been telling you this for only 15 years, okay? That the pharmaceutical companies, and this is a guy that worked right in this space, do not run advertisements on Fox News and CNN and all these news channels so that you'll buy the drugs. That has nothing to do with why they do it. That's why they're quirky, stupid commercials. Plausibility through stupidity, right? No, they are the largest ad buyers in the country. Nobody spends more money on advertising, especially with the news, than pharmaceutical companies. They're buying influence. It's like Joe Biden's son selling a painting for half a million dollars that he made as a finger painting by throwing paint at the canvas. The product isn't the point. It's giving an excuse for the transfer of money. And this is why you will never get accurate reporting on the news or even any investigation into what the pharmaceutical companies are doing, even though they are criminal enterprises that every year pay billions of dollars in not civil but criminal penalties. And they just see it as the cost of doing business. And Osambic, in particular, is running the exact same playbook, much more effectively, by the way, than OxyContin did with Purdue Pharma. I'm just saying. But then there was something else he said. And I heard my wife say something that I have never heard her say in my life. And you have to understand, my wife loves me and she, she supports what I do, but she's not like lockstep with me and all this stuff. She's, they said... The most profitable thing for a drug company is a sick child because you can sell the lifetime drug to them for 70 years. And she's like, pause that, pause that. She's pissed. And she goes like, they're like two hands in the air kind of separated. Like, I know you say this all the time, but I feel like we all need to get like a couple hundred acres and just move people. She's like, remember when Dr. Barry said, if you're fat and you're sick and you're eating all this garbage, you're not on my team? Yeah, I don't want them on my team either. We just need to put up a fence and keep everybody else the hell out and live our own lives. So how does that relate to teaching a kid to guard being a weapon? When you grow your own food and you understand what real food is, there's something that happens in your mind that changes you forever. And you come to a fundamental understanding of what food is, and therefore you recognize something when it isn't food. Had my grandfather, when I was an eight-year-old little kid, not taught me to garden, I don't know if there'd be a survival podcast today. I mean, all the other things in my life, what brought me back around was that when you plant a garden with a child, you plant a seed in a child. And there's something about that. This is a long-term seed. Maybe it sticks for some kids right away. For me, I had to be like everybody else. I had to go out and make my way in the world. But when nothing made sense, producing food did. And when you teach somebody to produce food, you make them independent from the system that supplies them food, at least to a degree. And... I love Ken, and I agree with him about the, the, the overconsumption of carbs greatly, but I will also concede this. When I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, and we went to the beach, if there was a fat person, everybody's like, oh, look at a fat person. Now you wouldn't even notice. 
The person we called fat in 1982 isn't even considered fat anymore. They're pudgy or chubby a little bit, a little big boned or whatever, right? Back then, they're like, look at that fat guy. Look at that fat. And I'm not talking about mocking him. I'm just like, you know, like that. And you notice. Now you wouldn't even notice. 50% of our children are obese. Let me say that again. 50% of people under the age of 18 in the United States today are obese. And it's something like 20% have either type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes and or fatty liver of people under 18. Fatty liver is a disease of, of aging alcoholics, not teenagers. They're attacking your kids. They're killing your kids. They see your kids as a walking dollar sign to suck money out of for decades until they die a slow, miserable death. So yeah, teaching them to garden. It's not just a weapon against them. It's a weapon for that child as they grow into an adult to protect themselves. When you plant a garden with a child, you plant a seed in the child. Tomorrow we'll have a flashback and then we're into a weekend. Think about that. We're heading into gardening season. Find a kid, plant a garden with them. All right, real quick segment here at the end. I need two things. One, I could use some guests. I'd love to have some guests on the show uh, with some new topics or even revisiting or taking new looks at other topics. Fill out the form, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and click on the guest tab. If somehow you can't find the, 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 the tab, it's thesurvivalpodcast.com forward slash guest hyphen submission. Guest hyphen submission. So fill out the form. It will come to me. I'll review it. If I think it's good, I'll send it to Dorothy. She might check a few other things based on what I send to her with it. And if we deem that we want you on the show, she'll reach out to you and give you some time. And we'll get you, we'll get you booked. I will say a couple things here. I'm done interviewing people with fake names. If you want to leave your last name off and you're like Tommy C., I don't even know if your real name's Tommy. So you can do that. But people like with weird code names and they want their screen blacked out, I'm done. I, I you Go find somebody else to do that with. We're not doing cloak and dagger here. I understand why some people feel that way. This is not the show for you. This is a community show that's designed to build community and people know each other. So I'm not doing that. Uh, and again, I won't take every guest, even if it's like an interesting topic. Sometimes the angle's not right or what have you. But if you ever submit a form and you don't hear back, or I, 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 sometimes I go back and say, this doesn't work, I'm sorry. Uh, if, you, if you figure out what we're doing here and change your angle, we may decide to have you on. I will say this, though. I do not have people on for infomercials. I get requests. I get at least five to ten a week from people with like agents and they want to sell a book or whatever. And the whole setup for the interview is nothing but sell, sell, sell. It's like a 1990s infomercial. But wait, there's more. Like, I don't do that. We want people to tell stories. And if you're somebody that's been doing cool things in your own backyard or your community or something like that, and you don't have a website or a business or whatever, and you're not like a known expert, as long as you can be interesting in your conversation... I will have you. If I have no way of checking on that, though, I may say, hey, you know what? Answer your first question for me. Make a recording and send it in so I can evaluate you. We ha I don't want to call the person out. We recently had a show where the guest was just not good. Um, very smart, but not good at answering the questions. And 
I can't have that because that wastes your, you guys' time. So if I ask you for like an audition, 30, you know, three minute answer or something to your own question, don't be offended. I just don't know who you are and I can't look you up to see what you've done. I may ask you to do that. I may not, depending on, you know, a variety of things. The other thing that I would like to do, I want to expand the expert council. For the past two months, I have scraped to have enough content every week from the people that I have to put together a show long enough to make an episode. That is not the purpose of the expert council. The expert council is to do two things. One, make my life easier, and two, is serve the audience. I've tried to put together a group of people who are really smart about a bunch of things, many times things that I'm not, and some of my council members are crack on getting stuff done. Uh, The Ron Paul team, I don't ask for anything. It just shows up. Nick Ferguson um, will make content for me when I need content. Like, without even thinking about it. Jeff Lawton, as busy as he is, I send him a question, there's an answer coming back. Ken Barry, eh, I let Ken go. Ken takes forever, and then he gives me three months' worth of content all in one day. So, I, I like that. But there's, there's going to be some people disappear from the council. Because I don't get an answer back. Or I get one piece of content every three months. So, I need, if I'm going to keep doing expert council shows, to expand this to where I have enough people that... Number one, I don't stretch. Like, I want to be able to... Like, right now, I don't have any content for next week's Expert Council show. None. I'm out. I had to use everything I had today. Or it wasn't a complete show. So if you have something that you'd like to be on the Expert Council for, send me an email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. Tell me a little bit about you. Not a ton. You know, just tell me a little bit about yourself and what you would like to talk about. And what is probably going to happen is I'm going to invent a question for you if I think you're, if there's enough width, like that you're going to get enough questions from the audience. I don't want to make them up for you. I don't want to make you two questions a month. I want people in the audience to actually ask questions. If I think there's enough width there, I'll give you a fake one and I'll say, send me an answer. And if it's good, I'll put it on the air and we'll see what we can do. And if it works, then we will add you to officially to the expert council if you want to do that. I sometimes don't think that people realize the opportunity that it really is. If you are building a business or something like that, um, being on the show, you know, every other week does a lot to build a brand. It does a lot to build a brand. And I want people who will take that opportunity seriously. Somebody who's done so, who we've trialed and will officially be part of the expert council as soon as I get his headshot and bio, is Joel Riles. Joel has gotten information back to me so quickly and done a great job. And if you want to, you know, and we've never had somebody really in that space about dog training before, um, it'd be great. You know, Nicole Sauce. I mean, just on it. And when she can't get material to me, she lets me know. That's what I need from people. And if you would like to be part of the team that way, then I need to hear from you. And again, you're going to get some sort of an audition. I don't just let people do that. Sometimes I just add people. Like if I've had them as a guest a couple times and they want to do it and I know what I'm dealing with, that's different. Um, But your ability needs to be that you can record an audio file and email it to me and speak intelligently and interestingly about what you're going to talk about. Uh, format needs to be like MP3, MP4, something like that. Please don't do like Google Drive and shit like that if you're an expert council member or become one. Email is best for me, uh, it, just the way I manage things. All right. 
With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, I want to remind you guys uh, that you can help support this show a lot of ways, but one is just to you know support our sponsors. So our sponsors today that I missed at the beginning are Start9 Embassy Servers and Above Phone. There are two great ways to take back your technology. Start9 will let you run your own apps uh, from your own server and completely control your files, your instant messaging in ways that you know, the NSA is not going to crack what you're doing. I mean, it's that good. You can also run a Bitcoin node or a Bitcoin Lightning node or any, all types of other stuff. And if you're thinking, like, I'm not technical, if you can install apps on a smartphone, you can use an embassy server. There's a little bit of learning curve here and there, but it's not hard. Uh, check it out today at Start9.com. And above phone, hey, how about you take your phone back from big tech? You have your own private app store. You can use apps from the Google Play Store. You can wall them off in their own little world so they only do their tracking and reporting when you absolutely have to use them. The phones are fantastic, and you get 75 bucks off as an MSB member. On a Start9, you get 9% off. So just remember our sponsors when you're going to do business. I don't have an item of the day for you today, uh, but you can always do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z-T-Spaz.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, if you start your shopping there, you can help us out. And I said I didn't have an item of the day, but I gave an interview to somebody today, and I was on for like an hour and a half with them, and I'm discombobulated. I did put out an item of the day before that train wreck happened, and I forgot that I had the interview and uh, stood the guy up for and was late to it and all. But anyway, um, our item of the day today is actually the Dino Myco Premium Mycorrhizal Inoculum. And I have a write-up on it to explain it, so I won't be long-winded with it today, but... If I had to give you one thing you could do to make your garden better, especially when it comes to plants that you're going to transplant into the garden, especially if you're starting them from seed, but even if you're buying them, it would be this product. By putting mycorrhizal fungi in direct contact with the roots of your plants, you're going to get so many benefits out of that and so much more resiliency in your garden. So check this stuff out. It looks a little bit expensive, but when you read the write-up and I tell you how to actually use it instead of the recommended dosage, um, you know you can make a ton of plants really, really resilient at a price point where you're looking at like 10 cents added to the price of a plant. So for instance, um, when you look at a bag and you use the recommended amount, 38 bucks would treat 68 plants. That's... That seems kind of, that's like a little more than 50 cents a piece, right? Um, But it will actually, if you use the recommended rate that I give you, make about 280 plants. So now, now we're down to like 10 cents, roughly. 10 cents a plant for far more productive plants. Now, why do they recommend so much? Because most people that use this stuff are growing cannabis. And if you're growing a high-dollar crop like cannabis, you don't even care. You, you, you throw two, teeps, two tablespoons in there, what have you. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. Again, uh, if you want to help us out, do that online shopping starting at tspaz.com. Uh, take my words today to heart about planting a garden with a child. When you plant a garden with a child, you plant a seed in the child that may not bloom until that kid's in their 30s. But it will never go away. It will always be there. And just like seeds in the soil, one day it will find something called a germination trigger. 
You can take ground that you've not added a single seed to, and you can burn the vegetation on the surface. And after you put it out, and you wait a couple weeks, plants will start to regrow, and it might not be what was there. Often it will be plants that you don't even find anywhere else in the yard, because burning is a germination trigger. If you go out and, and, and till up a little patch of soil, you'll also get plants that grow that you don't recognize from around the area. And if you do that side by side, you'll get different plants in the two different disturbances, the burn or the tillage or even compaction or heavy watering. There's all types of things that will trigger the seed bank in the soil. We call those germination triggers. Well, you don't know what the germination trigger will be in your, in your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter or your niece or your nephew or your great-niece or your great-nephew or the kid that lives next door. You might be long gone, dead, and buried before it happens. But I'm here to tell you from real-world experience, when you plant that garden with that kid, it's the greatest gift you can ever give them because it's something no one will ever be able to take from them and someday, somewhere, sometime, when that germination trigger hits, they'll take that into their own life, and they'll make their life better, and they'll remember you for it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.